This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. This is not a regular player, this is not a pretty good quarterback. This is an all time great. Is he? A strange bird off the field? He's a little nuts, I think. Okay? That's his deal. Is he really weird? Yeah. You don't have to hang out with him. You just have to put on your Jet jersey, go to the stadium, and watch him do his thing, which is move the Jets down the field and into the end zone, which is something you have not had in years. Subscribe to the Mike Francesa podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Mike Masnelli Podcast, podcast episode number 39 already. Thursday, January 5th is when we're doing it. And of course, it is brought to us by the great people at Bet Rivers. Don't forget to download that Bet Rivers app because Bet Rivers has a new football squares game where you can win up to $10,000 when you make your football bets. Just check it out on the Bet Rivers app. Okay, so today, there will be a special one-on-one interview with Hall of Fame baseball writer Jason Stark, my buddy. Now, Jason and I go way back. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the Phillies. We're going to talk about what could be another World Series appearance this year, uh, the the state of baseball in general, and, of course, uh, uh, our intertwined career. And if you enjoyed my uh, interview a few episodes back with Angelo Cataldi, I think you're going to really like this one with Jason. And uh, you know, I want to find out as much as you do what makes this man tick and his total dedication to being such an irreverent commentator on Major League Baseball. Uh, But first, let's talk some football issues. Of course, the Eagles are going into Week 18, and we'll talk about that uh, uh, a little bit. They are 14-and-a-half-point favorite. Uh, Last week they lost. A lot of people got worried, but the New York Giants probably got play anybody. So this should be the easy victory that gives them the number one seed. We'll get into that in a second. But the bigger NFL issue this week, obviously, is the situation that took place on Monday Night Football, Buffalo at the Cincinnati Bengals, and uh, safety DeMar Hamlin, a Pittsburgh guy who went to Pitt, and you saw what happened. Cardiac arrest on the field, uh, one of the uh, most heart-wrenching situations you're you're ever going to see. And I I don't mean that as a pun. It was uh, just hard on everybody, especially the players who were playing in that game. And what you saw in in that was was the brotherhood of players. You know, when I talk about the NFL and players getting paid a lot of money, I go, they deserve every freaking penny because not only you put your, your, your limbs on the line, in a lot of cases, you're putting your life on the line. And this was a classic situation. Now it it was a very odd happenstance. uh, Let's face it, that uh, DeMar Hamlin goes into cardiac arrest, has to be resuscitated on the field. And then also when he got to the hospital, and we're talking about the cardiologists have spoken about this, and the the uh, uh, the, the ailment is called uh, commodio cordis, 
uh, which is uh, could happen. It, it's a happenstance type of situation with the heart that puts you in a cardiac arrest. It doesn't matter how hard the blow is. Of course, T. Higgins went into him and tried to make a tackle. Uh, it's the timing of the blow. It's the timing of the blow in conjunction with the beat of the heart. It just flukily happens like that, and and it could stop the heart and you go into cardiac arrest. Now, now here's the good news today because it's come down that uh, he has shown improvement as he's in the hospital and still in intensive care, still critical condition, but he's showing improvement. In fact, they reported today that uh, his neurological condition is fairly normal. Everybody was worried about when the heart stops, the oxygen doesn't get to the brain and what the ramifications would that be. As far as they could tell right now, his neurological situation uh, has not been altered. So, so hopefully that, that stays that way. Now, uh, the, the issue here is, uh, and, and I've been on the record, and I'm not going to be softened by the fact that this condition is improving. Uh, when, when something that traumatic happens, the game is irrelevant. And I, I don't care what people say about the seeding and the playoffs and all that stuff. This is a life and death situation. This isn't like a torn ACL where you get a guy off the field. And I know in football, players and, and fans are programmed to go to the next play, get the guy off the field, let's continue the game. In this particular situation, uh, life and death, the game doesn't mean anything. And it doesn't mean anything to me at this point. Uh, so the, the, the concern about who's going to be the number one seed, or what the, I, to me, it's irrelevant. You, you cannot go back to this game because of, of the, the smear that's on it now. Uh, and, and it doesn't matter uh, how much he's improved because he's still not out of the woods. And, and you, you, if you think he is and you play the game and you forget all about what's really important in this particular situation, the game carries a terrible weight to it. So any makeup situation is still going to have that weight. So uh, here's what I proposed, uh, and I'm still proposing it. You don't need to play that game for seeding. The seating now will have to be determined by the crafty people in the NFL office based on some formatics uh, to the the point where I don't care if it's a coin flip, but they have scientific ways of figuring it out. Who deserves the number one seed? Who deserves the other seating in here? And that's what I think they should go with and not think about making up the game. There's no time to make up the game. You can't wedge a game in here between the playoffs. You can't uh, like push the season uh, up a couple weeks because planning is involved in these playoff games. All these plans have been set. You can't alter that. So to me, the game, and I don't know what the NFL office is going to do, I don't think the game should be played. If it alters the seating, you come up with some kind of a formula like they do with the tiebreaker procedure, and that's the way you stack the teams. And nobody... Nobody can complain about that kind of a solution. Are you going to tell me you're going to be a, a hard-headed uh, guy and say, well, my team got screwed when you're talking about a, guy, a man's life uh, is at stake here? If you think that way, you're the most callous human being on the face of the earth. So that's why I say there can be nobody that can complain about a solution like that. It happened. It's a tragic thing that it happened. It was horrendous, the view. It was horrendous for the players to be around. It's horrendous for the family, DeMar Hamlin, and DeMar Hamlin himself. And the game becomes miniature in this kind of a situation. Uh, That's the way I feel about it. Uh, All right. So anyway, get back to week 18 and the Eagles. It looks like uh, 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 Jalen Hurts will play. Uh, I think maybe he should play the first half, see how the game goes. You, you, you get him back in the fold. They're not going to lose the game. 
The Giants are hardly going to play starters. Tyrod Taylor is going to be the quarterback. They should be able to handle this game. Get a lead. That means you play the second half. You're not going to lose the game. The Eagles will get the number one seed. All is well, right? Uh, after that disappointment of last week, it's going to turn out that, that all is well. But uh, week 18 in the NFL is really interesting because half of it means something, and half of it is just a joke. And uh, here are the backup quarterbacks that you're going to see, the teams that have no reason to play game 18. All right? Uh, let, me, let me just start here. Uh, the commanders suck so bad. Carson Wentz has become such a non-entity in this league. He couldn't hold the job with the commanders to the point where they now have to play Sam Howell. Sam Howell, the fifth-round draft pick from North Carolina. Has no business starting at the time. He's going to be your starter. Good luck to you Washington fans who enjoy Sam. Uh, right now, let's go to uh, the Raiders. They're playing Jared Stidham, of course. He played last week. All right, so it's not technically a backup play. Uh, the Bears. This is beautiful. The Bears have taken Nathan Peterman off the cobwebs. I, <laughs> I mean, this guy's bagged around the league for 100 years, and he's now the starter for the Bears. Their quarterback situation is so bad. The Cardinals. All right, my man Trace McSorley couldn't hold on to the job after Colt McCoy went down, after Kyler Murray went down. They're trying out David Blau, who played for Purdue back in the day and was a back the third stringer for the Lions, and he wound, wound up as the practice squad quarterback for the Cardinals. He's, he's starting this weekend. Sam Ellinger with the Colts. Oh, my God, what a situation that is with the Colts. Uh, and Josh Dobbs is coming back for the Titans. And then uh, we mentioned Tyrod Taylor will be starting for the Giants. So enjoy your, your week 18 uh, on the on the red zone. I'm sure it'll be very intriguing. Uh, I had to do a postgame show with the Eagles, and they're a 14.5-point favorite. Uh, so so that's that. But the, but the big news, again, to me, DeMar Hamlin, the situation that happened was shocking to everybody. Uh, hopefully, he's improving. And uh, I, I don't believe the game should be played. Uh, you know, when you put the Cincinnati Bengals against the Buffalo Bills, it's always going to bring to mind what happened in that game. Ignore it. Come up with a formula to determine the seeds. Nobody could possibly complain about that. Welcome back to the Mike Missinelli podcast. You know, today I have uh, a special, special guest. I mean, some guests are special. Some are special, special. And today is in that latter category. This man has covered baseball for more than 30 years with a dedication and a panache and a, 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 a reverent style that is unmatched by really anyone on the planet. Uh, of course, our careers have crossed paths. Uh, he's written three books. He starred in a movie with John Hamm where he was actually the star and not John Hamm. Uh, he's had a Topps-issued baseball card. Hey, he currently has a podcast called Starkville. He's a writer for The Athletic. And uh, not uh, last but not least, he was voted the J.G. Spink Career Excellence Award. And he is in the Hall of Fame as a journalist covering baseball. He is the great Jason Stark. Hello, Jason. Mike. Happy New Year to you, my friend. You know, that introduction, it, it could have gone longer. But, you know, the, the, pod, the, <laughs> that was plenty. the podcast is, is fairly limited. But uh, uh, your career is amazing. And uh, like, I'm most really proud to call you a friend. And, and we've obviously collaborated uh, for many years uh, uh, on the subject of baseball. So uh, it, it's a privilege for me to, to, to do this. So you, I'm generally in awe of you. You are in awe of me? I am. <laughs> I, 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 am, I am in all. No, seriously, I'm in all of your brain. I, I, I just don't. Uh, 
And, and, and this is it's a great guest to have on the podcast because if people are listening, you are a blueprint to succeed in a profession where you're totally dedicated to it. And not many people in this business are totally dedicated to their profession. They do it. But you have this uh, this high level uh, of dedication that uh, I'm fascinated by. So um, and I want to get into that in a second, but there are some topical issues that, that I want to talk about, first of all, since I have you here, and this is a Philadelphia sports-oriented podcast. So, so let's talk about what just happened and what maybe is about to happen in the city of Philadelphia in baseball. Now, we've gone through many eras of excellence. There have been chunks of excellence, and this like, it looks like it's going to be one of them, and it was totally unexpected. So first, try to explain the evolution of the Phillies this year, where they barely get into the wild card, and then they get to the World Series with a fighting chance to win it. Yeah, it it was something I would say even they didn't quite see coming. Um, You know, that team was built to win, just not in 2022. And um, sometimes the planets line up. A lot of what happens in October is about matchups. And it's about sometimes how your stars perform when it's their time. Um, we, I mean, we saw how Bryce Harper met the moment. And uh, look, he was signed here because he had that in him. Uh, I, I think there was always a feeling that that, 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 that signing was – was not I, I think we in Philadelphia knew that there was something there that people outside Philadelphia did not know. And that was that the passion of the player was built for the passion of Philadelphia. And you saw that happen in this postseason. And like face it, it was a huge reason why they won. Um, the home run that he hit uh, in his very last swing of the bat in the NLCS to win that game, to rescue them from an epic collapse in the rain and to send that team to the World Series was cinematic. And it, it was it was a vintage Bryce Harper moment. It was what he was born to do, what he was signed to do. And it so it kind of starts with that in terms of what happened in October. But then the amazing thing about this season is th- that guy was missing for two months, two months. And somehow or other, they had a better record in the 52 games that Bryce Harper was not playing than they had in any stretch of 52 games with him after he signed here. So certain things about that team defied logic. I would start with that. What defied logic more than those 52 games? Yeah, pretty much. You know, here's some amazing thing about Bryce Harper, the evolution of a player, because sometimes it goes backwards. But he started, he came into the league kind of as a brat and, and not well liked. You know, Cole Hamels threw his first pitch at him, for crying <laughs> out loud. And now all of a sudden he's this uh, this leader statesman type of guy. And you've seen it a million times where guys come in a little naive, trying to feel their way, and then they get cocky. He came in cocky and got statesman-like. <laughs> yeah, well, he got to the big leagues at age 19. And, you know, when he arrived in the Washington Nationals universe at age 19, there was a guy in the room with links to Philadelphia named Jason Wirth. And Mike Rizzo 
had signed Jason Worth to a humongous contract that most people outside of uh, Washington didn't understand. But Mike, Mike Rizzo knew what Jason Worth could mean to that clubhouse and especially to a guy like Bryce Harper. And so he assigned Jason Worth to teach Bryce Harper about life in the big leagues. And so I'll never forget walking into that spring training clubhouse. Bryce is 19. It's his first major league spring training. And he's got a locker in the middle of the clubhouse. Um, But right next to it is a locker that says worth. And there's basically nothing in the Jason Worth locker, just one shirt hanging there. So I, I thought to myself, something is happening. Something's going on here. So I walked down to the end of the clubhouse because Jason Worth, of course, had a corner locker. And I said, okay, this is your locker. What's the deal with that locker? And he said, oh, well, I walked in and this punk kid has two lockers and he's never done anything in, in baseball. And I said, no, that, that's not how we do things. So I took my nameplate from over my locker and put it in the slot next to his locker. And I said to him, keep your slop, your stuff out of my locker. That, that was the way that Jason Worth taught Bryce Harper about being a professional, how you have to earn it. And then, you know, Bryce went through his ups and downs in Washington. But when he came here, he was like the geeky kid who, you know, through high school, nobody knows quite what to make of him. And then he goes away to college where nobody knows him and he gets to push the reset button. And that's what Bryce Harper did. Um, He had learned a lot. He'd been through a lot. And when he got to Philadelphia and had the largest contract in the history of the franchise and one of the largest in the history of baseball, he knew what that meant because of the people around him along the way in Washington. They taught him what it meant to be a star. You, you don't just, when you're getting paid $300 million, you don't, it's not just about showing up and swinging the bat four times a night. There's a lot that goes with that. There's a responsibility that goes with that. And Bryce totally gets the responsibility. It's amazing that I don't know how many more superstars in the sport are more accessible than him. Uh, it is pretty uh, amazing story. And uh, the, the amazing part of that story is that Bryce obeyed in that particular situation because, you know, as a bratty kid, he could have took words out and get the F out of here. But, but he, but he, you know, like that, that was important that he yeah. didn't blanch at that. Right. But there was one aspect that to, to Bryce that allowed that to happen. And that is that Bryce loved, still loves baseball more than anything and has tremendous respect for everyone and everything that was going on before he ever showed up. Um, and, you know, like Jason Worth comes from a baseball family, right? His stepfather, his grandfather played in the big leagues. And Bryce knew all about that. He knew all about Jason Worth and his history because that's how he, his brain operates. Here's another story. Um, do you remember Vince Scully's final season calling Dodger games? How mm-hmm. one player after another would get to L.A., their final trip, and they would 
go up to the broadcast booth and see Vin Scully because that's what guys were doing. You know who was the very first to do it? Bryce Harper. Because Bryce grew up in Las Vegas listening to Dodger games with his brother and he knew Vin was a legend. So he got to LA, it was April, and he said to the clubhouse guy, can I go up and and visit Vin? And they said, sure, I guess so. Went up, did the the photos, the Instagram thing, because, you know, Bryce wants people to know he did it. And that started that procession. But it, again, it's yeah. all because of Bryce's incredible awareness of how baseball works. Yeah, He's dedicated to the game. Um, I don't know if he's dedicated as much as you are. And we'll get to that in a second. But, <laughs> well, wait a second. Uh, let, let, let's, so let's, <laughs> seriously, I mean, you're like at the, uh, as far as the baseball goes, the, your reverence for baseball is amazing. Uh, so quickly on, on the Phillies now, because, you know, it, it, it's amazing that now in the off season, they were that close and they go, okay, we need this. And they go out and they get it. And uh, they're going to be without Bryce Harper for a significant part of this regular season. But they needed some help in the bullpen. They refigured that. They get the major superstar, Trey Turner, which is just massive. massive. They get Taiwan Walker to fill the, the four spot. They get Strom for the bullpen. Uh, they get Kimbrell, who at the very least will provide some maybe high leverage help if, if he's not the closer. Um, this team now is uh, dedicated to winning something for their fans. Well, there's no doubt about that. And it's not and it's not just about having the highest payroll in the history of the franchise because you can spend money badly. But why do you hire Dave Dombrowski? Because he's won everywhere he's ever been and he understands exactly how to build a winner. And you're you know, you've seen it, Mike, since he got here. I mean, he didn't have a normal offseason the first year because he got hired so late. It was almost December. He didn't have a normal offseason the second year because there was a lockout. This was the time when you really saw how good Dave Dombrowski is at his job. Um Trey Turner was blown away by the fact that he met with the Phillies early on in the process, and Dave Dombrowski told him, we want you. You're our number one objective. We want to do great things. We want to win the World Series, and we want you to be a centerpiece of it. And teams don't talk that way anymore. But, you know, I can't think of a single star that Dave Dombrowski has ever chased that he didn't get because he knows how it's done. He connects with those guys in a way that other GMs don't. And it's why he's going to the Hall of Fame. And so once the Trey Turner piece falls into the puzzle, then the other pieces start to line up. Uh, Taiwan Walker, if he's your number four starter, I mean, I, like, I'm not convinced that you'll get four years of greatness out of that guy, but I understand what they saw out of him. And it gives, it makes the Phillies, I don't know if you know this, the only team in baseball that has three starters who have pitched at least 150 innings two seasons in a row. Um, Craig Kimbrell is interesting. I don't know how that's going to work. Uh, I think it could be an issue if Rob Thompson doesn't give him the ninth inning more often than not. Uh, he, I mean, look at the numbers of his, in his career of when he's in a safe situation then versus when he's not. And it could go a million different ways, but the upside of, of signing one of the greatest closers of, of modern times, 
uh, is something that Dave Dombrowski understands and values. And here's the other thing that I think make makes him a tremendous fit for this town is that he understands that you win with stars. You need more than stars. So he's done a nice job of filling it at the roster around the stars, but you, you, you go out and you chase players who are not just famous for being famous. You, you chase stars who can make a difference, who embody true greatness, true ability to change teams, change seasons. Bryce, I mean, Bryce Harper, before him, but Kyle Schwarber, we've seen, can be that guy, right? Um, Trey Turner is clearly that guy. Um, Craig Kimbrell, at his best, is that guy. And that that's what Dave Dombrowski is after. He is after star power and, and difference-making players all over the roster. So uh, if Jason starts the manager with the numbers that you have on Kimbrell, you would – Give it, give it a shot to make him the closer, to get to make uh, him most effective. I mean, I, I, I think there's going to have to be a long conversation with Craig Kimbrell and Rob Thompson, and you know the pitching coaches, obviously, to explain this is how we did things last year. What's your comfort level if we do that with you? Because you know, look what happened. Two years ago, he was with the Cubs. He was having a spectacular year, one of the best seasons of his career. He was the most dominant closer in baseball and got traded to the White Sox where they decided not to let him close ever <laughs> because Liam Hendricks was that guy. And he uh, he unraveled. He didn't handle that well. Now, there are other issues with Craig Kimbrell. He has a really hard time repeating his delivery because it's just so high maintenance. Um, and they'll, I mean, they're going to have to do some, some stuff with him just on that front, but the psychological part of it is really important. Interesting. Uh, all right, Jason. So the national league East, uh, is pretty competitive and I'm curious to know where you think the Phillies stand right now on paper, because the Mets and Braves are still going to be there. Are, are the Phillies the number one seed here? They are not, not for me. Um, if, if I knew that Bryce Harper was going to play a whole season or five months of the season, I, I might reevaluate that. But the fact that he could be at two to three months makes me think, you know, they, they may have had 52 games of magic without him in 2022. What are the odds of duplicating that again in 2023? They're, they're low. And then the other thing that I would worry about is the last game of the World Series was November 5th. And we've seen time and again that when teams play that deep, not just into October, but a weekend in November, um, and their their off-season time to rest, regenerate, recover, and ramp up again is compressed by that much, that not everybody can do it. And I don't know, what do you think? I thought at the end... Zach Wheeler, what maybe he wasn't on fumes, but they were being really careful with how they used him. And Aaron Nola was gassed. And in order for the Phillies to win the National League East, they would need both those guys to be great. I, I just right, think that's a lot to ask. Then. Let me rephrase it. By October, will they be the number one seed? 
I think they will be playing in October. Um, I mean, I, I worry about the same stuff, though. I just worry about um, Noah and Wheeler and their ability to duplicate what they were at their best over the last year or two. Um, I, like, I think the Braves are really good. Um, I think the Braves roster top to bottom is better than the Phillies. Uh, I think the Mets upside is humongous, but I mean, they're talking with Scherzer and Verlander. What's the over under on how many games those two guys start? Uh, is it, I, I, if it's 60, I'll take the under. If it's 50, I'd be thinking about it. And that's a huge factor with them. So it's going to be a fantastic division, most interesting division in baseball to me. Um, I think the Phillies are a playoff team. I think they're better if everything falls into place by by October than they will be in April. I think Andrew Painter is one of the great X factors in the sport right now. It's I, They've got some plans for how they want to use him um, that I think are different than the way other teams treat young pitchers, 19 years old, who are clearly going, going to be in some kind of innings limit. Um, like they've got... They're, they're, they've got the capacity to win the World Series. They've got the ingredients. Um, just think it's a, it's a lot to ask to duplicate the way the stars yeah, line up. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective. I, I, I agree with you that the other teams also have their little little problems as well. So I, it, with that in mind, I think the Phillies can actually win the National League. Games. But let's, you know, there's, the, the, I mean, the, the, those, those three teams spent the, Bra- the Braves don't hit it. The, did the Braves hit enough? Uh, I I mean, I, I love their team. (laughs) You know, I think Ronald Acuna would be way healthier this year. Um, Ozzie Albies missed half a season last year. Um, we never know how healthy anybody's going to be, but that team won the world series two years ago and was better last year. Uh, I know they've lost Dansby Swanson, but they're really good. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's, Incredible that the Phillies and Mets have spent one point two billion dollars, and they they still might not be the best team in the division. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting year. I, before we get to your career, and I definitely want to dig into this. But last baseball question is the trend of the now the double digit year contracts, and what what you think of all this, and and that comes into play with uh, owners just being not afraid to spend money now, and uh, and the other uh, small market teams are bitching again about it. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I, it, it, to me, it, it, it puts the onus on all owners to spend more money. But the the uh, double digit year contracts are very interesting because you know you're not going to get the value at the end. These owners don't seem to care about that. It's it's win at the moment and worry about that way down the line. Is is that a good way of thinking? Um, you know, the Phillies actually pioneered this. the The Bryce Harper deal was the longest free agent contract in baseball history. And it wasn't until this winter that everybody else figured it out. Uh, the, the reason for the length of those contracts is not because these teams think that, say, Trey Turner or Aaron Judge will be just as great at 40 as they are at 29 or 30. No, this is the new deferred money. You lengthen out the contracts to reduce the average annual value of the contracts and it makes it possible to obviously not evade paying tax, but to lessen your payroll for luxury tax purposes and do more stuff around your stars. Uh, 
there's another hidden aspect to this. Nobody ever talks about if you, if you sign Trey Turner for seven years and $300 million, but a bunch of it's deferred, you got to put all the deferred money in a fund up front. But if you sign them for how many years it wind up being 11, right? Yeah. Then right. none of that comes into play. You don't have to, you don't have to fund the money up front. There are a lot of advantages for teams and they're, they're using this, these long contracts. Um, it's the latest trick in these front offices to try to minimize tax burden. Um, it's what Americans. Do. I get that. It's it's it's. Uh, I can't use this analogy because it's not penny wise. But it, it's all, all the, the penny wise. But the pound that you're still the money's not going to go away. So well, so Trey Turner or or Harper when they turn thirty five, more Turner than anybody because he's probably going to have to change positions. You're still going to have to pay it out. Well, you're going to have to pay him. But uh, the Phillies went into this knowing that there could be dead money at the end of those contracts. It's the cost of doing business. Uh, <laughs> you know, John Middleton is driven to win. I, I don't, is, I, you could say maybe he was, maybe he's obsessed with winning um, and winning a lot. And he and Dave Dombrowski are the perfect match because the owner has complete faith that the president of baseball ops will spend his money wisely will spend it in the name of winning the world series which is what he's all about and when dave dombrowski has the faith of the owner he's he's got this innate talent that other teams talk about of being able to convince one owner after another that like, i know we'll have a record contract record payroll if we do this but we will win. And he always does. He's going to been to the World Series with four teams. Nobody else in the history of baseball has been to a World Series with even three teams. Uh, we're talking to the great Jason Starr. Now, Jason, of course, was inducted into the Hall of Fame on a very hot uh, afternoon. <laughs> In Cooperstown, New York, Mike, I was Mike Missinelli was there. Inv- yeah, I was privileged to be to be one of Jason's invited guests. Yes. Uh, and and, and uh, interestingly enough, as you gave your speech, was always glued to uh, behind you. All the players, uh, Hall of Fame players who come back, are seated behind you. And, and I catch one Wade Boggs just completely passed out behind you. <laughs> I took I took a picture of it. It's one of the great pictures I'll ever have. Jason at the podium, Wade Boggs behind you, passed out. I have that effect on people because the, because the well, because the boys. The night before, the boys like to pound. And I think Waybug set the record. I was uh, listening to people talk, and he had like uh, 35 Miller lights the night before. Okay, I did not personally it, it was like any of those. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 did, I did see him in the, in the bar at the Otisaga uh, one of the nights that week, and he, he was having a good time. I can't, I can't vouch for why he was, he was napping during my speech. Yeah, it could have no, had a lot to do with his speech. No, it was an, let me tell you something. It was an exciting speech, so it, it had him. to be some, for, some foreign substance. Uh, all right, so let, let's talk about this brilliant career of yours because uh, – uh, this is true. At age nine, you're a Northeast Philly guy. Uh, and at age nine, you know somehow that you want to be a baseball journalist. <laughs> and and uh, that is just mind boggling to me. So so tell the, the people uh, how that developed. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was nine, but certainly like 
10, 11, somewhere in there. And I'm one of the lucky people walking around this planet who got to do that thing that I dreamed about doing from the time I was old enough to dream about doing anything. And I, I, I mean, I can't explain exactly how all of this happened. <laughs> I'm still kind of amazed myself. But the reason I began to dream it, um, it started with my mom. June Stark, uh, who was a, a writer, great writer herself, and uh, devoured the, the the sports sections of the, every, like every page of the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Philadelphia quote unquote Evening Bulletin every single day. Read every word in the both newspapers every day because she she had newspaper blood. In her, she worked briefly with Red Smith at the old Philadelphia Record, and so she had a lot of writer friends, and she loved great writing. And so, anytime she read something great in the newspaper, and especially the sports section, she made sure that I was aware of it and that I read it. And you know, I, I you know, I got to grow up in Philadelphia at a time when sports writing in our town was undoubtedly in its golden era. And Mike, I, you know, I used to actually write to Stan Hockman when I was a kid, I would write him letters asking about his job and how he did stuff. And, <laughs> and he would actually write back. And I can't tell you what that meant to me. Um, and so the whole writing thing, I guess some of it was in my DNA because my mom again was a just a wonderful writer. Um, I could tell you about her whole career, but um, she infused that love of writing in me. Um, my dad kind of likes sports, you know, <laughs> but not not at my level. Nobody in you know my house wasn't the Ripken family. <laughs> you know, I was really the only big time sports lover in it. My dad didn't understand I could sit there and watch games <laughs> like all the time. Any game that was on, I'd watch it. Um, and, but somehow I developed that love of sports and it started with baseball because my dad and my uncle used to take me to, to Phillies games when I was eight, nine, 10 years old. And uh, there was just something magical about it. And so somehow or other, I, I became that guy. And I told this story in my hall of fame speech. But um, actually, if you're if you're looking at me on our camera, you can see off over my shoulder there's a photo hanging on the wall of my office, uh, black and white photo of me and my little sister Karen walking home from school one day. Um, she's about a year and a half younger than me, so I was ten, she was nine, and underneath the photo, there's a little composition that she wrote for school in fourth grade, and I was in fifth grade, and in it, she says something like, if you ever want to know anything about baseball, you should ask my brother. I was 10. <laughs> okay. And this is this this photo and this composition are hanging right by the door of my office so that when I go out that door back into the into the world out there, I see it. And sometimes I'll look at it and I'll read it and I'll think, how did my life happen? I can't explain it. It's a, I'm, how lucky am I? that I dreamed of doing this thing and then got to do this thing.
But you, you're so right about the influences, uh, because I did the same thing. I devoured newspapers and, uh, know. you know, the columnists, the Hawkman, Jim Barniak from the Bulletin and uh, Sandy Grady uh, and, was and, a hero. And Sandy Grady, the Sandy great Cadwin. beat writers. That, yeah. yeah, they they were just they attacked the the, 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 the whole profession. Uh, Bill Lyon and, and uh, you know, I think all the people, great people we work with at the Inquirer. So so then you go to Syracuse, which obviously is a, a major journalistic uh, school where it's good with produces a lot of great talent and you come out as your first job at the Providence journal. My first job was at the Providence journal covering suburban news. Yep. I okay. <laughs> and then you, you went on to cover the Red Sox. So let me ask well, you at the I, Providence I, journal. I, I should be, I should actually be, be clear about this. I didn't quote cover the Red Sox. I was allowed okay. to write about the Red Sox. <laughs> okay. Uh, every right, once so in a while, but I did a lot writer. of stuff there. Yeah. Was, was Angelo Cataldi at the Providence journal when you were there? Uh, no, but I knew Angelo. In fact, uh, I, I can reveal this secret that a few of us know, not that many people know, that it's all my fault that Angelo came here because uh, I recommended him to the Enquirer. Here's the story. Uh, my, I, got to, I got to Providence, Rhode Island, and that first summer I was there, I played on a softball team with a bunch of newspaper guys. Angelo was on my team. Uh, he was the narrow, he was working for the Narragansett Times. Okay. How about that? Rhode Island. Yep. Prestigious publication. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, so we knew each other like from, I mean, I was 22 or something, right? 21. And um, I, everybody knew how talented Angelo was. And so when I left the Providence Journal to go to the Inquirer, who replaced me there? Angelo Cataldi. And then I can't remember exactly what the opening was at the, at the Inquirer, but I said, I know a guy who is incredibly talented, who's just what you're looking for. His name is Angelo. And I, I, I started it all, man. <laughs> That's I, amazing. I, I was I, Dr. I Frankenstein. I, I've never that story. <laughs> All right, so Jason, let's move on now. You get to the Enquirer. You become the Philadelphia Phillies beat writer. Uh, beat writer is is the hardest job uh, known to man in journalism. And uh, you cover the team in a most tumultuous time where they're good, but they're also battling each other. And they can't get over the top because the Dodgers are in the way. The Cincinnati Reds are in the way. Pete Rose comes along the whole bit. Uh, so uh, talk about what it was like to cover that team because uh, – in in the 1980 season, I, I recall you being into several battles with players, or they were in <laughs> battles with you. So, what was that like? Yeah, I learned a lot. <laughs> I did. That, that was one of those formative experiences that I'll always be grateful for. Uh, I'll never forget. Um, ha- you know, I have incredible memories of all the amazing stuff I saw happen on the baseball field. But I, I don't know. I tried not to l- let it show in my writing how difficult that team was to cover. But, oh, my God, Mike. Y- you know, um, this was my first experience ever covering a professional sports team. At, you know, at that level. Not dropping in every once in a while to cover a few games. But first day of spring training to last day of the World Series – and, uh, you know, a lot had happened before I ever got there. Uh, Steve Carlton had decided to never talk to people from my profession for whatever reason that happened before I got there. Uh, he, 
you know, he uh, was able to convince people in that clubhouse that people in my profession were the enemy. Uh, that wasn't helpful. <laughs> and then, you know, we went through a, a thing in the middle of that 80 season where almost the entire team stopped talking to us. Uh, there, there were there maybe six or seven or eight players that were still talking, but most of the, most of the players on a team that was going on to win the world series were not speaking to us. Um, you know, I want you to think about how hard it is to do your job under, under those circumstances. Um, I was luckily, I was covering a, a manager in Dallas Green, who I mean, he just generated so much material for us. <laughs> um, he could literally write your story every day because he was smart. He was opinionated. He didn't care what people thought. He said what was on his mind. And that was great for us. It wasn't great if you were a player in that room. Most of them didn't get it. They'd never been treated that way. And, you know, all of these forces began to line up to create um, a, a really turbulent situation because all right, the 1980 team won the World Series, but that was no, uh, there was no joyride from beginning to end you know <laughs> they they like the pirates had won the year before and the pirates had their number and the pirates led most of that season um and so in august they they embarked on a three city road trip that was seemed like it was going to determine the course of their season and it started with a four game series in pittsburgh in which they got swept and, you know, Dallas lost it. Uh, and Dallas closed the doors of the clubhouse, but screamed at that team for so loud for so long that we could hear it outside the door. And Hal Bodley, who was covering the team for the Wilmington newspaper, recorded it. <laughs> and so <laughs> we had a transcript of the, the, all the stuff that Dallas had called players who had won the National League East three years in a row. Um, and, you know, that seemed like the end for that team when they get swept in Pittsburgh and get get accused by their manager of quitting, of giving up, of not caring whether they won or lost. But it turned out to be just the opposite. That lit the fuse. They then went to, uh, if I remember this right, Wrigley and New York and swept both those series and got super hot and played themselves back into the race. And then a couple things happened with me. Um, and there was a West Coast trip around Labor Day. And on the Sunday afternoon, brilliant sunny day in San Diego, not a cloud in the sky. Um, Gary Maddox ran out to center field, not wearing sunglasses, lost a fly ball in the sun and it cost them the game. And Paul Owens, the general manager was so furious that he went into the locker room and he had a screaming thing with that team. And, uh, 
you know, I had some stupid line when I was trying to describe the Gary Maddox play. It's something like uh, he never would have made it as a blues brother because, you know, they, they love wearing sunglasses day and night. <laughs> and uh, I didn't think much of it. But now the season goes on and they go into the final week and a half of the season. Um, they're, the Pirates have faded. They're neck and neck with the Expos. The Expos come to Philadelphia. It's the next to last weekend. And they split the first two games. And so whoever wins the Sunday afternoon game is going to have control of the race. But whoever loses this game is in big trouble. And so uh, it's a late afternoon start for TV, a big national Sunday afternoon national game. And who loses a fly ball in the sun <laughs> in this game to cost them the game? But Gary Maddox. <laughs> okay. And uh, so the next day, I didn't, I, would, I didn't lead with this, but maybe 10 paragraphs into my story, I described this play and s- said, nobody's had this much trouble with the sun since Icarus. You know, Icarus was the, was the mythological, <laughs> mythological creature <laughs> who flew too close to the sun uh, and his wings yeah, melted yeah. or whatever, right? Uh, so, yeah. um, like, again, I didn't think much of it. But now the next day, um, get to the park early, clubhouse doors open. I walk inside the door. And I'm in there maybe 30 seconds and I get a tap on my shoulder and it's Gary Maddox. And he says, come with me. So I knew this wasn't good. Um, <laughs> so he leads me, uh, we go out of the, the main part of the clubhouse, you know, to the, some back room, some equipment closet. He said, in there. We, he points me in the, this equipment closet. He goes in the equipment closet. He closes the door and he lets me have it for a good 15 minutes. And, you know, look, he was, there was, there was a lot of stuff going on. I'll explain it to you in a minute, but um, he was mad. He wanted a vent. We had a good relationship. I thought <laughs> considering he was one of the few players that was still talking. Uh, and, but at one point, he kind of explained to me what was going on inside the room, which is, he says, have you seen the lineup tonight? I said, I just walked in the room, so I haven't seen it yet. He said, well, I'm not in it and you're the reason. And I said, wait a second, I'm the reason that you're not in the lineup. And he said, right. Um, Our manager, he manages for you guys. He manages to make you guys happy. And I said, look, Gary, you can accuse me of some stupid line about a Greek god, but <laughs> I can promise you that Dallas Green did not confer with me before he made out this lineup. And so anyway, you know, he, 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 he talked himself out and they said, okay. And they let me, let me out. I was happy to be alive. <laughs> but when we go back into the clubhouse, look, it was the last week of the season and the Phillies were a major story in this town. And I don't know how many media types were in the room and saw him lead me away, but they were concerned about me. I was gone a long time. And so, you know, everybody was asking me, you know, what happened? And I said, well, he was mad. He was mad about that line. He was mad about being benched, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's okay. It was fine. And, it, you know, in an ordinary situation, it, it, w- it wouldn't have been a big deal, except 
it was not an ordinary day in the life of the Phillies because that day there was a week to go in the season. They basically had to win out, win every game. And that Dallas had chosen that day to bench Gary Maddox, Greg Lazinski, and Bob Boone. Three pillars on that team and in that clubhouse. And the veteran players were enraged. And I walked into that. But then it kept going because, if you remember this, Larry Boa had a pregame radio show then. And on his pregame show, he ripped the manager. <laughs> this, this team's about to go win the World Series, Mike. <laughs> okay. So then, so like at that point, uh, we're starting to get into this Phillies in turmoil type scenario. <laughs> you know, that was the narrative. And so uh, Ralph Bernstein, who was the AP writer in, in Philadelphia, thought, hey, we got a story here. Phillies in turmoil. And so he he decided he was going to write a story about Larry Boa rips manager on radio. Gary Maddox confronts Jason Stark in clubhouse. <laughs> Bam, writes it. And it, you know, so now this thing, this story arrives in every newsroom in the region and every sports editor is calling every writer in the press box saying, you got to write a story about this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so now I start one up having to do interviews uh, for three innings, trying to explain to people what happened with me and Gary Maddox, trying to minimize it to say, it's just one of those things that happens between writers and players. Nobody wanted to hear that. Phillies in turmoil was a way better story. So um, that's, that, again, that's not even the whole story because all right, now this thing, these stories are written and the game goes on. They're playing the Cubs. They have to win. The Cubs stunk. But in the 15th inning, the Cubs take a two-run lead. And the Phillies in the bottom of the 15th come back, score three runs to win. Who comes off the bench and gets a huge pinch hit? But Gary Maddox. <laughs> okay. Like, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> now go back down to the clubhouse. And it's the biggest win of the year. It saves the season. And the manager is fuming. He's not happy. <laughs> he's He is ticked off. It's the first chance he's really had to talk to us about all the stuff that's going on that he's now been made aware of. And he says to us, after the biggest win of the year, these guys need to look in the mirror. They're not, they're, they don't care if we win. They just care about themselves. And like this is what he says after the biggest win of the year. And so this becomes a monstrous story. Uh, Ray Dinger had time. He was writing for an afternoon paper. He waited everybody out. He went into Dallas's office. Dallas told him a bunch of stuff about what he was mad about. And, you know, huge columns stripped across the front page of the bulletin. And I was like, I was written about everywhere, <laughs> coast to coast. And so, like, this wasn't good. <laughs> so from that point on, Mike, um, those guys gave me such a hard time all the way through the postseason. And so, like, if they lose one game that week, the season's over and I'm, you know, I'm off the hook. But no, they they go on this tear. They 
they they win the NL East, they go to the playoffs, have this incredible series against the Astros where they they have two elimination games that they win, and now they go to the World Series and they win the World Series. And every day, somebody on that team decided to confront me about something, and it was hard, man. Um, you think you, I, I don't think if you read what I wrote that you would know what I was going through, but. That was one of the hardest things I ever had to do in my life. You, like you've known me a, a long yeah, time. How yeah. long we've known each other? Yeah, you know, Forty no, years, right? No, well, and, almost. And I, and I, I, yeah. I'm like one of the easiest people in the world to get along with. I'd never, I'd never encountered a situation where that many people hated the sight of me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember it well. And uh, here, here's what my conclusion, like. There are a lot of there are a lot of miserable people that cover a baseball beat. For for you to uh, stand up to that with, with congeniality almost speaks to you as a person because uh, a lot of people because you have you had a responsibility to cover the team, so you yeah. couldn't like lash back at those guys. You had to sit back and take it, and but that's your nature anyway. But you, you know you work with some miserable guys. Like Ralph Bernstein was always miserable. <laughs> but say those guys that you that cover baseball with you and ready to fight everybody. Ray Kelly the, the whole bit. So it's a testament to you that you kept your head in that kind of a situation. Uh, but yeah, I, I do remember it well. And uh, so let me ask you this. They, they win the World Series the whole bit. It, it, it's, it's not as pleasurable as you might think to cover a World Series team. Did the baseball beat grind you up for those reasons? Uh, it, he, look, it was very stressful. Incredibly stressful. Um to cover those teams in particular. But, you know, I, as I mentioned, when you first asked me about it, this was, this was such a formative experience in my career because I did, you know, I did develop a toughness that has really helped me through many, 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 many other situations um, that I, I don't think I had before I went through life thinking I like people, I expect people to like me. I never, I never ran into a situation like that where I, I, I learned how tough you have to be to survive in the, in the media world and not even the modern media world, but that media world. Um, and it, you know, it, it really helped me because like when I thought guys were out of line, I would give it back to them. I, I'm sure you've heard the famous story about me and Dickie Knowles. I've told it publicly now quite a few times, and there's a great epilogue to that too. But uh, Dick Dickie was one of maybe five or six players who the next year decided they weren't talking to me at all. But that isn't how they did it. They pretended I didn't exist. So I... Uh, Dickie would go back and forth from that group to not at the end of that group. But we, uh, in a game in St. Louis, he pitches very well and they win. And so, you know, a few of us go stand around his locker after the game and we're talking to him and I ask a question. He acts like I'm not there. Like he never heard it. So, and somebody else asks a question, he answers it. So now I ask my question again. <laughs> he acts like I'm invisible. And so I said, what's your problem? And now he, he looks right at me now. Now I'm no longer invisible. Yeah. And he points yeah. his finger at me. And he says, what's your bleeping problem? 
And I said, my problem is I want to know why you're not answering any of my questions. And he said, I'm not answering any of your questions because I'm not bleeping talking to you. And I said, you're not bleeping talking to me since when? He said, I haven't talked to you all year. And I said, you talked to me last week. He said, nope, I haven't talked to you all year. And I said, you're nuts. And he came (laughs) at me like he he fired a punch at me that I ducked out of the way and then all hell broke loose. You know, players grabbed him and the manager came running out. It was just, it was madness. Um, and like that was quite a thing to happen where I almost got into a fight over whether or not the guy I was talking to was talking to me. <laughs> okay. And Dickie in those days, you know, he'll like, he's the first to admit it now was, was troubled and, uh, yeah. emotional and, uh, you never knew which Dickie Nolge you were going to get. And now he, you know, he's a completely different person and, uh, you know, actually counsels other players on all sorts of stuff. It's his job. And so when I won that Spink award and it was at the winter meetings and I was working for MLB Network at that time. And so they, I, you know, I'm going to the Hall of Fame. They invite me onto the set to talk about it. And Harold Brown says to me, you know, one of the cool things about you, everybody likes you. Everybody loves you. Like, did, did you ever have a, a problem ever with a player? <laughs> so I told a really short version of the Dickie Knowles story. And they were, they were there. This is live national TV. And they're, they're like sitting on this set with their mouths wide open. And so the next you're in spring training. I'm in it's one of my days in Clearwater and who comes strolling across the field, but Dickie Knowles. And he says to me, Jason, did I throw a punch at you back in the day when you covered me? And I said, Dickie, you did. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> I don't believe I did. I don't remember ever wow. doing that. Um, and I said, look, I understand. I'm over it, but it did happen. And Mm -hmm. I told him the story and he said, well, if I did that, I can't tell you how sorry I am and how much I apologize for that. I was messed up then. And you're a great guy and you're a great writer and you didn't deserve that. So if I did that to you, I was wrong and I am so sorry. And it's like, it's, 30 something years later, but yeah. it was incredible how sometimes the world spins long enough that you make peace with all the stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to just a long answer, it, just a long way of saying it, it toughened me up. Yeah. It, it, and uh, it, I was just going to ask you whether those guys have come full circle. Like, you know, Bo's around and, and Luzinski's around yeah, and Maddox is around and you're good with all of them. All right. Yeah. So, but, but back then, the, you know, it was interesting about that because the, the public sided with them. They were players. You guys were maggots. You guys was a writer, writer maggots. So that worked in their favor when they won. It's like, see, those goddamn media people were, were holding them down. That's that's the moral of that story. All right, so let's let's re- you, you get off the beat after like I can see where like several years would grind you up, and and you become a baseball writer outside the, the realm of baseball, and you create Week in Review, which is a, a column that was picked up by everybody uh, nationally and, and the whole bit, and it was you and this 
this defines the Jason Stark style, the irreverent style, where you saw some things in the game that you, you thought were entertaining, and they were completely offbeat. It's stuff that no one would ever think about, and you've you, you've now continued <laughs> to do this. Your your week, your year in review this year goes through so many different parameters. It's amazing, and and, and like you know. You you tell not just what happened, but well, what happened uh, with a hundred different views of inside what happened, <laughs> like like uh, uh, the, the the king of no swing. The, you analyze a twenty eight pitch uh, uh, in <laughs> half an a inning. Phillies game, right? A Phillies game, the national. Like nobody else on earth is doing this. The detail of of uh, hundred and thirty two position players who pitched this year. <laughs> and so my my question to you is because. No, Normal people don't think this way. <laughs> I got to be honest with you. Your head is one monster computer filing cabinet of factoids, but constant work of remembering this stuff and writing it down and organizing it in your head. I just I can't imagine how you do this. You, you know how much useless stuff is rattling around my brain? <laughs> like, really? What, 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 is, what, what is wrong with what, your brain? What am I what, doing <laughs> filling up my brain with this useless <laughs> baseball minutia i you know i joke all the time with my wife i need to defragment my hard drive up there (laughs) but your hard drive is your hard drive is so massive i can't there's there's like i can't believe it's in a human being yeah i you know i I honestly don't know how i came to be that guy who you know like had that eye for the weird and the wacky and the you know the, the numbers turning the numbers upside down but um, again, a lot of it is just growing up in Philadelphia at a time when the sports writers in our town were great. And one of the things they were great at was being funny and turning funny lines and getting players and people in the sport to say stuff that was funny. And that's what I wanted to do. Cause I grew up reading that, um, Stan Hockman was uproarious to read. Right. Yeah. Like he, yeah. He, he definitely was so good. Yeah. Um, he was and that, my number one guy. Yeah. And they were just, I mean, this is just, it was just a style that I grew up reading that I wanted to emulate. And then the other guy who was my hero, who uh, I studied religiously and, you know, I'm lucky to call myself one of his closest friends is Peter Gammons, um, who taught me so much about covering baseball and acted like I knew something about it and that I was good at, writing about it. And um, Peter also had an eye for how popular culture and all kinds of Mm. uh, crazy stuff in our real lives could somehow intersect with baseball. And so that reading him, reading all those great Philadelphia sports writers, it, it occurred to me that there's, there's a way to cover baseball that nobody else is tapping into. And I became that guy. Um, and, you know, and, like, and I might add, you're the only guy. Well, you know I mean, what? who's going to. Nobody's doing it quite like this, but there are a lot of people now who who take you inside the numbers in a really creative, you know, irreverent way, uh, think outside the box a lot the way I do. And then one of the coolest things about, um, about going into the writer's wing of the Hall of Fame is that. I, you know, I heard from so many people in our business who told me 
what an incredible influence I was on them in the way they write about the game and the way they think about the game. And that meant more to me than just about anything. Um, but nobody else is like, nobody else watches Sammy Sosa hit a home run at Wrigley that flies across Waveland Avenue and goes through a window and thinks, oh, I'm going to call the guy that lives there. <laughs> okay. Which I did. You told this story in my hall of fame speech too. I, it took me three days, but I tracked down the guy who lived in the apartment whose window Sammy Sosa broke. And it was a guy from France, Philippe something or other. And, uh, so <laughs> Philippe something or other. So he, <laughs> so this guy tells me, um, that he, you know, I said, what'd you, you know, what'd you think when that ball went crashing through your window? And he said, well, I was not home when I come home. I walk into my apartment and there is glass all over the floor and there was a ball there. And I said, so what did you think when you found this baseball there? And he said, well, I, 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 I didn't see how this could happen. And I said, well, Philippe, you rented an apartment across the street from this giant baseball field. You didn't realize that your, your apartment was across the street from a field. He said, Oh, I knew that I was across the street from a field. I just never knew that baseballs would leave the field. <laughs> okay, so, like, what? It's one of the most memorable conversations yeah, I ever yeah, had in my yeah. whole career. Yeah, it was a great uh, no, so nobody accent. else is doing that. If that's your point. <laughs> Yeah, great French accent, by the way. Uh, no, no, I'm, where's what I'm talking about? Like, here it is. Like, the Giants win eight to one to make the record eighty-one to eighty-one. The Mets win seven to four on seven four. A gray pitches against the white. A gray pitches against the gray, and one of them is wearing gray. This is the kind of stuff that is like insane to me. All right, I'm so I, 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 you are point. insane. You're totally insane, and I wonder, like, with all this consuming your brain. How do you have time for life? I I, I enjoy life. <laughs> you, like you know that too. You, you and I've known each other a long time. But yes. I'm very, you know, I'm very, I'm very disciplined about the way I gather this stuff. And so, mm-hmm. you know, every morning in the baseball season, I wake up and I start going through the games. I watch, I watch video. I have a, I have a notebook, a daily log I keep of stuff that interests me. You know, that fits, it just fits this, all these goofy things that we're talking about. You know, I, I, every May the 5th, Cinco de Mayo, I'm looking for guys who go five for five on five five. <laughs> Hadn't happened in a long time, Mike. Um, but just, I, it's part of my daily, <laughs> my daily regimen. It's how I start every day. I'm on the exercise bike and I'm going through the games and I'm ready for the day. This is just well, I, I tell you, it's it not, is, it is and you and you keep doing it at such a high level. I, I, I you know, we all like look at a time where we're going to stop the, this crazy game, and uh, you just keep going and, and churning it out. Uh, uh, this has been such a pleasure to talk to you. I, I want to uh, just create one last story because this is a people's story that, that people kind of know if they watch the old great sports debate. So, <laughs> so we worked together many years at the Enquirer, and then um, uh, well, I left, and then uh, but I was still around. And uh, uh, sports radio happens, and I'm so uh, this crazy idea with Angelo going to sports radio and Al going to sports radio and Glenn going to sports radio. This crazy idea called the Great Sports Debate comes up, and we all get together and do this show, which really turned out to be an amazingly popular show to the point where we did a live show, uh, like in some place <laughs> at some some uh, hall in, in the Northeast, wherever it was. Uh, it was a mall. But, uh, 
Was it was a mall? Was it? I, I don't know where it was, was but it people paid. People paid it. We did the mall show, but we also did a pay show. People had to pay admission to come and see us. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, the the show that I, I want to bring up is a show that I wasn't involved in, but it caused me trouble. And it was the show where, and for some reason, Angelo did not like Jim Fergosi. Now the Phillies had gone wire to wire that year. In '93, almost to win to win the, the, the to get to the World Series, but he despised Jim Fergosi. Now, a lot of us who were around Jim Fergosi felt the same way, but Angelo had this contempt that went in the face of the fact that the Phillies were successful. So he creates this uh, this show called "The Trial of Jim Fergosi," and he writes this show, and he somehow gets you involved to be the judge, the English no, judge. I was not the judge. Oh, you who? What I, were you? The I prosecutor? Played, I played or, manager Fergosi. Oh, you that were for my job. Okay. I, stuff oh, like oh, he, wanted, he wanted to make him look like a fat <laughs> guy right. who chain smoked. So he <laughs> yeah, stuffed yeah, pillows yeah. under my shirt. That's right. He made you for He was the English judge. Uh, I think. I think Morgan. Or it was, was Morgan. I'm sorry. Anyway, he was, he was the judge, and Angelo was prosecuting the prosecutor, attorney. Yeah, and okay. Glenn Macnow was the defense yeah. attorney for R- me. Right. So, so, so I wasn't on the show. You were Fergosi. Lucky you. Yeah, he stuffs you. Angelo decides to stuff you with pillows and cigarette, and then making Fergosi look like a schlub. So, uh, and and you guys do do the, the whole show. The next time I see Fergosi, he attacks me in Philly's clubhouse. <laughs> I remember this. Yeah, you come, and, and I because you know, I was cordial with him. I say, hey, what's up, Jim? And he looks at me with contempt and snubs me like you got snubbed in 80 by a lot of the players. And I go, you have a problem? He goes, you know what the goddamn problem is. And I had no idea. So I walked down the tunnel. I go, what's Fergosi pissed at me about? He goes, I think he's hot about that great sports debate thing. I said, I wasn't even on the show. I hadn't even seen the show yet. And so I, so I, I go back in his office. I go, are you pissed about this great sports debate show? Because I wasn't on that. He goes, God damn, you're a liar. You were on it. And you, Grant. I go, I wasn't on, I wasn't on the show. You owe me an apology. And I said, matter of fact, I don't want to take your apology now. I think you should give me a written apology. for <laughs> yelling, screaming. And it was you guys. Yeah. yeah it was now, let me ask you a question. Do you, would you can't like? How do you feel about that moment? Because you weren't that type of guy. You would you wouldn't go there to disrespect people. And, and in retrospect, I I assume you, you you would like to take that moment back. You think? <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we're still talking about it. Oh my god! Um, it's thirty years later, man. Let it go. Um, all right. This, you know, we t- I talked earlier about life lessons and, and and things that happen to you along the way that teach you stuff that, that was this was one of those moments for me um I, I this won't come as a shock to you none of this was my idea <laughs> definitely <laughs> playing the manager of the Phillies and stuffing pillows <laughs> On, under my shirt and smoking, chain smoking, <laughs> fake cigarettes. Does this sound like the I like the kind of idea <laughs> I would have? No, but, but it's amazing the influence of of the of the devils and Angelo and, and right. Morganti right. sucked it, you right into it. They did, and that was the lesson. <laughs> like. It made me take stock of what what I what was really important to me in life, and you know I love 
doing the great sports debate. It's incredible to me how people still remember it and talk about it to this day. I wrote that book on the Phillies winning the World Series, and I ran around and did book signings for a year. And there was not a book signing for a year where people didn't mention how much they loved that show. <laughs> and it hadn't been on the air. But that point, almost yeah, 20 years, right? And then, yeah. and then they, like, Comcast Sportsnet started re-airing it. Like, re-airing 25-year-old shows. I, I said the only two shows that, from the 90s that are still airing for no apparent reason are Seinfeld and the great sports debate. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, we did a lot of trim, like we had no idea what we were doing, but we did so much great fun stuff on that show. And it was so much fun to do, but not every show. <laughs> like we were, yeah, well. like we, you know, that like we got to the, we were doing a live shows. So we had to do something special. And, and this was, the whole thing was Angelo's brainstorm. I knew it was a bad idea, but I somehow <laughs> you got sucked into it anyway. Yeah. And did yes, it you. and all hell broke loose, as you know. Yes, you did. Now, all right, Jason, last thing. Uh, we all were members of what I thought was maybe the best inquiry sports staff ever. And there were a lot there was a lot of talent on that staff. And we uh, Angelo leaves first, and Al leaves, and I leave, and Macnell leaves. In, in retrospect, you and you were a journalist to the, to the full extent. In retrospect, do you think we made the right move? Because it was really difficult for me to make that move at that time. Maybe probably difficult for maybe it, it wasn't difficult for Angela, but it was probably because we we had like the 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 inquiry was the bastion of journalism, the ivory white tower. It was like sacred, and here we was left for sports talk radio, which at the time I go really. Am I doing that for like? Is this too frivolous? <laughs> did, did we do it, it, from from uh, your trained eye? Did we do the right thing? I think you did the right thing, and I did the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> you guys bailed. I stayed, uh, and um, you know it's it's funny how certain things happen in your life, and you don't understand at the time um, what they really mean. I, I think the emergence of WIP, the emergence of sports talk radio and the way WIP rated our great staff at a time when everybody was looking to leave anyway for all kinds of reasons. Um, it changed the face of sports in Philadelphia. Uh, it certainly, I, I think it left an imprint on sports talk radio, not just in our town, but every town. Uh, nobody did it better. Nobody had a better blueprint. Nobody did it smarter or more fun than you guys did it. And look at the way it has shaped your lives and careers in ways that working at a newspaper never could. Um, and like, I, I, you know, Angelo's coming to the end now. Uh, it's, it's incredible to think about the arc of his journey uh, you know, Al and I have been in touch and he's, he, you know, he's having a hard time processing, um, what it means for him and trying to reflect on everything that's going on in his life and times, uh, you know, Glenn and Glenn sat next to Ray all these years and now, you know, Ray is retired and, uh, you know, Glenn is still doing his thing, you know, in, in the way that only he can. And Mike, um, you're one of the giants the giants in Philadelphia radio history, not just sports radio history, but Philadelphia radio history. Um, 
the 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 way you've always done this is so special and so smart and so ingenious that i mean how can there be any doubt this was the best thing you could ever have done but it's funny we talked you mentioned the trial of jim fregosi as for me um that was the moment when i realized who i was okay and what really mattered to me um i you know i had to after that show because I was on double secret probation at the Enquirer, had to decide, well, all right, well, what do I want to do? Um, and I, I, you know, I decided that what I wanted to do, what I wanted to be was, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to write about baseball. And I thought that was my calling. I thought that was the best, that was going to be what defined me and my career. And so at that point, I dedicated myself to my day job <laughs> in in a way that, you know, I was still trying to sort out uh, at that point. What, what am I going to do? Am I going to be a columnist? Do I want to go you know, go the same route that you guys went? And that, then it, it, it all hit home. I'm a baseball writer. It's what I am. It's what I'm going to be. It's what I love. I'm going to follow my passion and follow that dream I had as a kid and see where it leads me. And I, you know, for you guys, you wound up doing that thing that that was perfect for you. I wound up doing a thing that that's been perfect for me, and I'm 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 glad that we all f- went down that path and had the journey that we had, and we're all still connected by where we started, where we are now and the journey that led us all here. And it's like one of the coolest parts of my life and my career is that we're all connected the way we are. That's just so well said. I can't even add to it, but I will say this. You're, you're legendary. You're in the MF hall of fame. Okay. (laughs) All right. So I, I mean, that's, that's where I end the whole thing. You're in the hall of fame, Jason. Listen, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, You can't imagine how I look forward to to this interview because we could, we could, sit and have a conversation that's not limited by 10 minutes and have to go to a commercial. Uh, so fa- <laughs> right. thanks you for, for all the years of, of cooperating with me, coming on as a guest. And uh, uh, we're obviously going to stay in touch and continue success in doing what you do, man. You're the best. Mike, you're the best. And uh, I, I can't tell you how, m- how much I treasure our friendship and our long relationship on and off air and behind keyboards all these years. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Thanks for doing this. And just thanks for being in Cooperstown and for always being such a great supporter of me and my work. Thank you, brother. Take care. You too. All right. Thanks so much to Jason Stark. Uh, I I enjoyed that interview immensely. I hope you did as well. Uh, Let's come down the home stretch of the Mike Missnelli podcast for today. And uh, I'll give you my picks of the week. Now, uh, last week, uh, I threw out three winners to one loser uh i took uh, the seattle seahawks over the jets i took the giants over the colts they're both winners i did lose on georgia they did not cover in their victory last week but i had the big play of the week the tulane green wave outright over usc which makes me 33 and 26 on the season let me go with this week is so hard to call so let me go what i think is two safe plays in the nfl I'm going to ride with the Steelers against the Browns. Steelers minus two and a half. I think they're playing pretty good, and they want to close out the season 
uh, pretty well with their starting quarterback. Uh, the Browns are just uh, – there's no reason for them to play. Steelers have some pride. I'll take the Steelers minus 2.5. I'll take the, the Cincinnati Bengals at, at minus 7. Uh, I stay away from the Bills, but uh, I take the Bengals over the Ravens. That's a pretty high line, uh, and the Bengals uh, need to win the game. So uh, that seven-point line tells me a little something. I think the Bengals will uh, cover the seven. So there you go. Steelers minus two and a half, Bengals minus seven. Uh, All right, so uh, let's close it out uh, for this podcast for today as we go into a football weekend, week 18. Uh, reminder that uh, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, MikeMiss25. You can email me. I'd love to hear from everybody out there, uh, especially uh, after uh, what you heard with uh, Jason Stark. Uh, the email address is Mike at MikeMiss.com. And, of course, MikeMiss.com is my website. You can check in for, for all the things that I have going on right now, including my book, which is called The Adventures of Shima the Sheba. If you're looking for a children's book, uh, take, a, take a chance. 20% of the proceeds will go to animal shelters. It's a, it's a book about my dog. She narrates it, but it's my head that narrates it in various scenes where a dog's growing up, and it's good lessons for children as they grow up, good lessons for parents uh, who can read to their uh, child, or uh, it's a child who just learns to read. I think we'll have fun looking at the pictures of my dog, great illustrations by my friend Alex Lee. My winery, uh, yeah, I bought into a winery. I'm a percentage owner of Natale Vineyards. It came to a courthouse. This is a great time to go because it's like, you don't have anything to do with these weekends, these winter weekends. Just go down to a winery. Hang out in our beautiful wine tasting room. Uh, sample our wines. So we're really making some great wines down there. It's natalevineyards.com. If you want to order wine online, have it shipped right to you, N-A-T-A-L-I-V-I-N-E-Y-A-R-D-S.com. And, of course, download that Bet Rivers app. You can't get any better than Bet Rivers app. I, I've been hitting it hard, and I am on a streak. Uh, Darren, our producer, my producer, Darren, who hasn't said much in this podcast. Uh, hey, Darren, are you, are you with us? Yeah, just say hello to the people. Hello to the people. Yeah, all right. Uh, so, uh, so I'm eight of my last nine on the Bet Rivers app. That's a strong yeah. run. That's a real strong, strong run. run. Eight of nine, uh, Bet Rivers app. So download it, put it right on your phone, pop it up whenever you're inclined to make a bet. Uh, this is a hard NFL weekend to call, but uh, you still get some good values. Uh, all right. Thanks, everybody, for for uh, listening to the podcast. Thanks for making the podcast uh, very successful in our short period of time. We're doing it. This is episode number 39. I can't believe we've done 39 already, but we have. And uh, thanks to you guys out there for listening and spreading the word uh, about the podcast. So thanks from the bottom of my heart as we are into this new year now. Make it a great year. Uh, this is Mike Bussinelli. Uh We'll talk to you on Monday. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.